Good evening. I'd like to read from perhaps the most familiar section of the birth of our Lord found in Luke chapter 2. The songs picked out this evening uh, were picked without me announcing uh, the subject that I was going to preach on, but uh, fit exactly uh, with the story before us. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. If you thought of all the familiar passages that you know in the scripture, this certainly would be one of the most familiar. That is both an advantage and a disadvantage. Sometimes when we become very familiar with a passage, we stop thinking about the passage. It's good for us to read Christmas stories at odd times of the year, times other than Christmas, because it might strike us in a different way. It's healthy for us to read in different translations or to read different quantities of the story or to compare and contrast uh, different uh, gospel accounts as to the beginning of Jesus' life. It's also good for us with adult minds to go back over ground that we've covered as children because often uh, as we learn stories as children, we're just looking at the bare facts And we're not stepping back and incorporating into our understanding of these facts our overall understanding of what the Scripture says on the subject. For example, to glance quickly at this uh, story, you realize they had to move rapidly and they were inconvenienced in the birth of our Lord. We also know some particulars about the story, uh, that it is in a surprising place in an unusual manner uh, that our Lord came. Uh, Those are particulars that are uh, easy for us to pick out and easy for us uh, to remember, but few of us have spent much time contemplating why did he have to move so suddenly just before he was born? Why was he born in the manner he was? Why were these symbols picked to be able to recognize that he was the one who was born. It goes to the problem of pride. God's people, the Jews, were an extremely proud people. They felt, from their perspective, that they were obeying God and following him. But they had turned what should have been a personal relationship with God into a 
outward religion without any change of heart or any true personal relationship with their creator. You may remember Jesus having conversation with a young lawyer, quizzing him about the law, and it was not uncommon for such men to say, I have kept the law in its entirety from my youth. Imagine such pride, such personal confidence that surely I am so righteous that God should accept me. You'll know that as they read the scripture, they were careful to concentrate on the passages they liked and to skip over the passages they did not like or did not understand. Are you seeing any comparison to us today, any similarities between the way we handle Scripture and the way they handled the Scripture? Uh, Do you see any problems for American Christians today regarding complacency and self-reliance and self-righteousness? The Christmas story shouts humility, and that should not be lost on us. How would God the Father send his Son to save us if the people to whom he was coming to announce the kingdom and to draw them to himself were so self-righteous that they would reject him and try to create a Messiah in their own image? How would you send your Son to such people? What would be the way that a king should be born? How should the Messiah be presented to his people? In the Christmas story, you can hear of the forerunner being born, John the Baptist. The precise language describing him is that he came like Elijah and could fulfill Elijah's prophecy of being the forerunner if they would accept him. But he wasn't Elijah, and he didn't need to be Elijah because there was going to be no need for the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy in John the Baptist's life because they were not going to accept Jesus as Messiah. They were going to look at him and say, he's not what I was expecting. He doesn't measure up to my standards. I don't like the way he talks. I don't like what he's saying. He makes me uncomfortable. He's not saying what I would expect him to say. And yet, who is in the wrong? And who needs to change? Who needs to have the ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? The story of Christmas is not just bare facts that we know well. The story of Christmas is meant to be emotional. It's meant to tug at our hearts. It's meant to say to us, I can't believe that he had to come this way. Oh, I wish we could have honored him as was due him. Oh, I wish we would have received him as he came to us. 
John's comment is, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. How sad. How sad. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, that even a secular Caesar, like Augustus, is but a pawn in the hand of God, moving God's people to where God wants them. Sometimes we get so frustrated with our government, we say to ourselves, he's going to ruin everything. None of us has had a Caesar rule over us. Look at how Caesar treated God's people. You wouldn't want a Caesar ruling over you. And yet, I find it ironic and nearly comical that if we know the Micah prophecy, we know where the Messiah has to be born and his mother is not in the right place. How is she going to be pushed from Nazareth to Bethlehem? In the right Bethlehem. There's more than one. How are we going to get her in the right place at the right time? Caesar demands a census of all the inhabited earth, which is all the Roman Empire. Most censuses taken every 14 years, you didn't have to move. In fact, it's fairly unheard of that you'd have to go back to the birth city of your ancestors. In fact, in ancient history, the only time we know of this is one that was conducted in Egypt. But here it is. We need a census of everybody, and everybody has to move to their ancestral city. And so at the most inconvenient time in Mary's pregnancy, Joseph says, I'm sorry, honey, I got to go. Now, there must have been a conversation as whether they were going to go together or Mary's going to stay home. Remember Mary's condition. Her pregnancy is suspect. She's an unwed mother. Imagine all the gossip that is going about her in the city of Nazareth. It's the death penalty to commit adultery when you're betrothed to someone. Now, it's true, like we today, they didn't really keep up with the law very carefully, and they weren't executing many people, just some. But she certainly would have been divorced and put out in shame. And it, frankly, would not have been very safe to leave her behind. I'm sure there was a conversation about, this is the wrong time, but look how pregnant I am, why he's going to be born while you're gone. This just won't be. I must come with you. Oh, but you can't travel. It's so far. It's so difficult. It's so dangerous. Any of you women ever been pregnant, nine months pregnant, and remember how you felt? I cannot speak from personal experience. I can only hear it from my wife or my daughter of what it's like to be nine months pregnant. And they cry out. Rid me of this baby. Get this baby out. I can't stand this any longer. I am in so much difficulty. Imagine putting a pregnant woman like that on a donkey and bouncing her across the rocky terrain, up and down and up and down, all the way 
nearly to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is just a little hamlet outside of Jerusalem. The reason they say they go up to Jerusalem is because it's such a climb in elevation up to Jerusalem, even though Nazareth is to the north. It is comically ridiculous to think that we're going to move Mary at this time. And yet, it's exactly what God wanted to have him born in the city of David. Now, that was David's city, even though he didn't spend a whole lot of time there. It really was his ancestral city, but you don't even normally think of it that way. It's not even a particularly important city, other than it's the city that was prophesied. It's David's city, and this promised Messiah is going to be the king that rules from David's throne forever. And in that prophecy, David knew that he was not speaking of Solomon because he knew Solomon wasn't going to live forever. He knew of a future king, a supernatural king, who would rule over his throne forever. And he thought far into the future. And that beautiful promise that a son, a descendant, would be born to him and rule, and his throne would have no end. Yes, it has to be Bethlehem. What does that teach us about the way God treats us? Even special people. Mary is very special. She is picked among the young maidens to be the one who will bear the Messiah. And yet you say, why is our Lord roughing her up? Why is he making life so difficult for her? normally pay much attention to this, but regularly we find ourselves saying that to ourselves, do we not? Why is the Lord roughing me up? Why is the Lord treating me so? Am I not obedient to the Lord? Why? It's not because he takes delight in seeing us suffer. There are several reasons. One is to demonstrate the humility of the Lord as he comes, to demonstrate the humility of his parents. Another is to place him exactly where he needs to be, to work all things together according to his plan. But it's also for the development of the individuals. You can't pick a hero or heroine in the scripture without seeing how God developed them in their character to shape them to be the people they needed to be for the future. And that took stress. That took trials. During our devotional time at the dinner table this week, uh, my sons were prompting me with the difference between temptations and trials. They were very curious about this. And we were remembering that our God tempts no one, nor can he be tempted. That We are actually tempted when we're drawn away from our own lusts. It's our own selfishness and desire to please ourselves and serve ourselves at other people's expense that causes us to choose sinful, tempting circumstances. And they were trying to remind themselves, now, temptation itself is not a sin because our Lord was tempted. Yes, that's right. Temptation is not a sin. But then they were trying to distinguish, well, what does a trial mean then? And why would God allow trials into our lives? 
So we read James 1. And what does it tell us there? James 1 tells us that we lack endurance. The only way to gain endurance is to suffer trials. You can ask an athlete, you can ask a farmer, you can ask a soldier, all those three are illustrations in the scripture of people who know what it's like to work hard, to be stressed, and to learn from it. And so he says, we should not complain when it gets hard and whine when it's difficult. We are being stressed for our good. It's how we respond to it. Yes, we may be tempted to take matters into our hands and to solve them in an immoral, sinful manner. That's the temptation, but that's not the trial. The trial would be having to move to Bethlehem at the last moment. A temptation might be to complain about it the whole way. A temptation might be to blame God for it, as if God doesn't know our needs or care for us in difficult circumstances. There's a difference between a trial and a temptation. So all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, that's the province, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Again, it's not much of a city. It's more like a hamlet. Because he was of the house and the family of David. And so both from his legal father, not his biological father, the Holy Spirit is his biological father in a supernatural way. And from his mother, who on one side of her family is also of the line of David, he receives his right to be in the line of the throne. Verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him, this is much stronger than our engagements today, these betrothals were legal contracts that would require a divorce to break. And yet, though Joseph is caring for her in her pregnancy, he has not yet slept with her in the way in which husbands sleep with their wives. In order to protect her, to keep her a virgin until Jesus would be born. So Mary, great with child, comes along. Verse 6, And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And listen how quickly all the details fall together in one short verse. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the very old days when Carol and I would travel as uh, young marrieds, uh, back in those days the motels would have signs out in front of them, vacancy, no vacancy. And you just drive down the road and when you got tired and wanted to stop, you would stop at one with a vacancy. A little later on in our marriage we began to realize after we spent two hours looking for a motel one night, this is not the way to travel. We need reservations. So now uh, we regularly uh, make reservations in advance, uh, often planning to drive insane amount of miles in one day, thinking that, oh, sure, what, are, what is 800 miles? Oh, yeah, we can get 800 miles in today, and plan to stop at a particular place far in the distance. 
Well, there's no way to plan these things. No one he knows with whom he can stay. He hopes to stay in the inn. There are too many people moving around. There's no room in the inn at all. And the picture is immediately told to us there's just no room for Jesus in any of our hearts. And even at his birth, there's just no comfortable place for him because we're not accepting him. We're pushing him away. So where is he born? Where they keep the animals. There is a tradition, a fairly early tradition, 75 AD, that the stable was actually a cave. And perhaps, we don't know for sure, he was born there. But we know because of the place where he was laid, it's where animals would be kept because he was laid in a manger, a feeding trough. Again, these things aren't picked by accident. The one who's the bread of life, the one who feeds us, the one who nourishes us while he is yet a newborn is laid very strange place for a newborn, but in a very picturesque place for us to think of him as such, laid in a manger, because there just wasn't any other place for him. Notice Mary doesn't have anyone there to help her with the birth, other than her husband, and we husbands don't know a lot of things about this, because she herself is the one that wraps him up. And with what does she wrap him? Long strips of cloth. I learned, I have five children, early in my fatherly experience, that one way to quiet a baby is to wrap them quite tight uh, in the little receiving blanket. And so it wasn't long before I learned after I changed the diaper to lay the baby in the receiving cloth. And much like wrapping a a present, you pull it up over his feet and you put one wrap over this way and one wrap and you wrap them around tight and then hold them in your arms and somehow he feels safe and comfortable, wrapped up tight, somewhat like the womb, much less likely to cry. Mary herself wrapped him in these claws and laid him in a manger. This story screams humility. How do we know that humility really is the key for us in understanding how he came? Read Philippians 2, the best passage on the incarnation. How does Paul apply the doctrine of the incarnation to us? He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the attitude that he had, the attitude of humility. How humbling it was for God himself, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to become one of us, to become a real human being. I don't know if you've begun to understand uh, what the purpose of uh, NASA and the space program is about. I've come to understand they're looking for another place to live. They're trying to see, could we make it on the moon? They're trying to see, could we live on a space station? They want to find, is Mars hospitable for us in case we blow up this planet and need to transport us somewhere else. And people start saying to themselves, are we going to find other creatures out there somewhere? 
I'll tell you something rather startling. The second person, the Trinity, became an earthling, a human being, and he will be forever. He's not a Martian. He's not from Venus or Jupiter. He came to Earth, of all things. No other planet. He became a member of our race. He joined with us as one of us. He knows what it's like to be human because he is human. He knows what it's like to experience life as we experience because he did. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He veiled his glory. He hid the insignia of majesty that would make him so obviously worthy of worship. He became so humble that when we would look upon him, we would just see a man. And Isaiah says, an ordinary man, not even particularly special, not even so special that we'd want to stare at his face particularly. Physically speaking, ordinary. Now why? Because the antidote to our pride, our self-reliance, our complacency is humility. Humility before God and receiving God for what he offers to us as he reaches out offering forgiveness for our sins and relationship with him. Even the Christmas story, even these carols that we sing and are sometimes sung by secular people and you say to yourself, can you hear the lyrics you're singing? If you understood what you were singing, you would be led to the Lord just in the truths that are conveyed in these lyrics. He didn't merely become a man. He became a humble man. He was born to an unwed mother who had to travel to Bethlehem at the worst possible time, who arrived in Bethlehem with no room in the inn to be born in a cave, to be wrapped in strips of cloth, to be laid in a... Where can we lay him? Why, this bed of straw, this manger... If Christ has shown us such humility, can we not humble ourselves before God and hear God's message to us in what he offers us in the gospel? Even the witnesses of his birth are the strangest kind. One would hope that kings would come to recognize him. One would hope that even King Herod would recognize him. One would hope that those who'd read the Old Testament scriptures would come and recognize him. But when God goes looking for witnesses, who does he pick? Just outside Bethlehem, because Jerusalem was nearby, shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night. To be this close to Jerusalem meant that they were raising lambs for the sacrifice. It was difficult for them to ever go into the city. They watched their sheep 24 hours a day. And so what they would sometimes do is set up pens in which they could combine several flocks together. And uh, these pens were made by 
uh, piles of rock with one entrance, a doorway, and a shepherd would sleep across the doorway and guard the sheep at night. And some of the other shepherds could actually go into town briefly. When they came back out, the sheep would recognize their voice. They could call out to them, and the mixed flock would actually separate and follow the proper shepherds. Shepherds moved about a lot and consequently were considered untrustworthy people. They had sticky fingers. They sometimes got confused as to what was mine and what was thine, and they often would keep things for themselves, and people didn't trust them. In fact, there was a law that they were not allowed to testify in court because you didn't trust shepherds, humble people, smelly people, not the kind of witnesses that you'd pick for the birth of the king, but perfect. If you want to exude humility, and if you want to picture the Lamb of God come to save us from our sins, the one who comes to give his life as a sacrifice for us. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch of their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. It's so pitch black out there that you could see every star. Your eyes had adjusted to the darkness, and suddenly there's an angel there, and it's as bright as day. There is no reason why you would not be terrified. It is shocking. The angel said, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. The concept of joy is often associated with salvation, and he's come announcing salvation being achieved by the gift of the Son born this day. Notice, uh, this is going to be for all the people, uh, certainly coming to the Jews first, but a hint of how salvation will extend beyond the Jews to even the Gentiles themselves. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the promised Messiah, the one you were looking for to be your leader, to rescue you from oppression, is actually also your Savior. Furthermore, this Messiah, this Christos, is the Lord himself. These are the words used to translate Yahweh in the Old Testament. He is God. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws. Not a big hamlet, but you might be able to find more than one baby that night, and you might be able to find more than one poor baby wrapped in strips of cloths. But the next delimiter is particularly unusual, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I submit to you, you'll never find but one of one of those. <laughs> There'll be only one in Bethlehem tonight. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude, easily translated as an army, a whole army of angels showing that God is powerful and could have achieved whatever he sought to achieve that night, and yet he sought to send his son in the most humble way to us. 
that multitude of the heavenly host praised God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. You see, even in the most humble expressions, God can be glorified. Because God doesn't look on the outside like we do. He doesn't pick us for how we look. Do you remember when the prophet was trying to pick one of David's sons? And surely it's this one. No, not that one. Surely it's this one. No, not that one. Do you have any other sons? You see, God looks on the heart. And consequently, God deserves all glory for the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom of the way in which he has gloriously sent his son. Glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. This army announces peace, peace with God and consequently then peace with one another. True and lasting peace will not come from our State Department or from our negotiations with others or even any kind of compromise one with another. True peace among mankind will only come when we first find peace with God and then find our unity in loving the Lord Jesus Christ together. And yet this is how God will unify us. It's how he will bring disparate nations together, people who speak different languages from different cultures, from different races. We will be one in Christ, equal in Christ, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We will be one in Christ through this peace that is announced this night. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Some of us are so oriented towards our schedules that we have no flexibility at all. And even if God comes shaking us and say, do this now, We'd say, but it's not on my agenda. Can we please, if God were to awaken us in the middle of the night and say, go, say, let's go right now and see this thing that the Lord has declared, what the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And now what are you going to do about it? Now that you know the truth and you've seen it for yourself, now that you're comforting Mary by witnessing what has taken place, what are you going to do about it? What should we do when we know the Christmas story? Verse 17, when they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. They told Mary and encouraged her about how God had revealed to them what had happened that night, that this was the Savior, the Messiah, Christ the Lord himself born that night. Mary knew that, Joseph knew that, but how comforting it was for her, for God to send the shepherds to her, to tell her that they too had been visited by angels, and had been told the truth of who this child was. And as they spoke about this all throughout the town and around the countryside, verse 18 says, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told to them by the shepherds. They testified. They witnessed to the truth. No one could shut them up. 
You remember later on when the apostles themselves were beaten and imprisoned and told never again to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. They said, can't do that. Once you're a witness, you're a witness. How could we possibly not tell what we've seen? Why would we keep silent? You can't stop us. We are going to speak about what we know. This is the proper response. What we know we should share. If this is a truth that begs to be shared, then let's share it. Let's tell others the truth. Jesus Christ is born this day in the city of David. How did Mary respond? She treasured up all these things and kept pondering them in her heart. Sometimes things happen so quickly and so profoundly, we just need to write them down or memorize them in our heart and meditate on them over and over and over again and say, what did I learn? What just happened to me? What did the Lord just do in my life? What did the Lord show me? What did he teach me? Too often, we have learned something great and then soon forgotten it because we've not meditated on it. Oh, that we would write some of these things down in a journal. Oh, that we would quickly remind ourselves and keep bringing it back to memory again, understanding increasingly deeply what it is that God has taught us. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Yes, the whole theme of humility continues with the shepherds being the one picked to be the immediate witnesses. It wasn't Herod the king that came to see Jesus. It was foreign kings far from the east that came. It wasn't the experts in the law who could read the law and actually inform the magi as to where they could find the baby Jesus who wanted to go see him. No, it was those wise men from the east who traveled so far who wanted to see him and bring gifts to the newborn king. Herod even attempted to murder the newborn baby. And when he missed his opportunity tried hard to make it up by killing all the infants in the area and the entire region, all under two, killed. It had been revealed to Joseph in a dream that they needed that very moment in the night, in the dark, to run to Egypt, protect the baby. And so they did, and that actually fulfilled the prophecy that his son would come out of Egypt after Herod died and then return to Nazareth where he would be reared. You see, none of these circumstances happened by accident. All of these circumstances were woven together in the plan of God, a tapestry that looks confused from the direction that we look at it, but actually is beautiful the way God designed it. So often when we in happenstance look at one particular circumstance in our life and the difficulty that we're going through, we say, this doesn't seem fair, this doesn't seem right, this doesn't seem to have any point. I don't understand how in the world I'm supposed to grow from this. I don't know why this is happening. How can this bring glory to God? We can't learn this story without coming to understand 
that God's plan for us is not to make it as easy for us as possible, but to chip away every aspect of our character that is not like his son and to replace every inferior character with fruits of the Spirit, to mold us and to shape us into Christ-like men and women, well-equipped to serve him. He started well, thinking Mary and Joseph, and they proved themselves well, didn't they? But not without great difficulty. Many of these things would pierce Mary right to the core of her heart to understand the suffering that her son would undergo. And perhaps it pierces our heart as well, realizing that it was we who put him there on the tree. And it was for us that he came. And that when he died on the cross, he was paying for my sin in order to make it possible for me to receive the forgiveness of God and have relationship with him forever. The Christmas story is a beautiful story, a wondrous story, a story of joy, and yet a story that screams humility to teach us that our Lord humbled himself in order to save us. Which of us then would not be willing to be humbled as well in order to be grown into the servants we need to be as the Lord seeks to develop us? Father, it's that point that we pray for our life. We ask that you would help us uh, not to insist on an easy life, not to insist on pleasantries, but to desire to be used. We can hear you calling, who will serve the Lord? Who could I send? May you hear our voice, send me. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.